we are in a series on the book of Joshua, and I have to confess, I find myself both excited and nervous this morning. Um, And my nervousness arises from the fact that we have a passage that is not simply one that we're going to go, yay, to. Uh, It's a passage that requires a slightly deeper response from us. It's a bit more profound, I suppose you might say, and I am excited at the prospect of us getting into that. I'm nervous about my ability to communicate, and I'm simply trusting that God will speak to us through his word Uh, and that he will enable us to respond to what the scriptures say to us. Last week we looked at Joshua chapters 3 and 4. Steve Thomas helped us to do that and brought us a word that I believe was very important. I said that at the end of the meeting last week and I encouraged all of our small groups meeting around the city through the week uh, to take what Steve had said last week and to talk about it together. I know some groups did that this week. If you've not done that, Um, Whatever I say this morning, I'd still like you to take this coming week to talk about what Steve said last week. And maybe there'll be something from this morning to add into it as well. But it was clear that Steve's words to us last week was not just a word that would touch some individual's lives, but a word to us as a body that we need to take time to work through. The thrust of the word was that as the people of Israel came up out of the desert and were Uh, and crossed the Jordan and went into the promised land, that there was a crossing over for them in their pattern of life and their way of thinking. Where they had been used to manna falling from heaven and all that they needed being provided miraculously, there was a change to living in a land where they would need to take responsibility for conquering their, each of them having their allotment of land, Uh, taking responsibility for conquering it. That is, that it was time for them to start working with God. Not only being blessed by God, but time to start working with God. And what we have in the next chapter is just the beginnings of them starting work with God. Just a little bit of work, Uh, a prelude to much more work yet to come. So I'm going to read Joshua chapter 5 to you. Now, um, it is quite a gutsy passage. It is fleshy and bloody and painful and real and profound and beautiful by the time we get to the end. So here we go. If you have a Bible, do find it, apart from Russ. uh, uh, No, I didn't nick his Bible this morning. I was going to nick his Bible this morning. I left my Bible at home. If you ever do that, there's a few that are in the metal cupboard at the back, and you cannot be embarrassed by going as I have this morning and grabbing one so that I can read to you from Joshua 5 this morning. It says, Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we'd crossed over, their hearts sank. And they no longer had the courage to fight, to to face the Israelites. Now at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeah Harloth. And uh, there's a little footnote there that in case your Hebrew's a little bit rusty, uh, that means hill of foreskins. 
Now, this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out, that is, of Egypt, had been circumcised, but all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the desert 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they'd not obeyed the Lord. That was when they first came to the promised land 40 years before and they refused to believe that God would grant them possession of the promised land. That disobedience led to the curse that that whole generation of military men would die in the desert. And that's what had now happened. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had promised solemnly their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they'd not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. And again, there's a note, Gilgal sounds like roll. It's a rolling hill. On the day, on the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain, those being uh, fast foods of the ancient Middle East. If you had grain and needed to cook quickly, uh, that's what you could do, unleavened bread and roasted grain. And the manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year, they ate of the produce of Canaan. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. There's a lot here. The passage starts off... We jump on two slides, please. The passage starts off with this. With what needed to happen for the Israelites, for them to get ready to go to work. Get ready to join in with what God is doing. You don't go to work in a mess. You might not have to shave. 
Uh, it might be lipstick to put on, clothes to iron, but we don't go to work in a mess. It's like, I hope you don't, because I hope that you'll continue in your employment. And I hope that you're honouring the people that you're working with by dressing as is necessary for your work. We wouldn't think to go to work just in our pyjamas without having put on our lipstick. Not that I do that often. Uh, Or shaved, or whatever it is that you need to do to stop yourself smelling before you get to work. Uh, The people of Israel, likewise, had to get ready before they could join in with God's work of conquering the land of Canaan. And for them, it wasn't about lipstick or shaving. For them, it was about the men getting circumcised. That's what they had to do to get ready. Why circumcision? It seems a slightly odd thing. Well, the answer is in Scripture. If we go back to Genesis chapter 17, there is a clear link between circumcision and gaining possession of the land of Canaan. In Genesis 17, it's recorded that God met with a man called Abram, later to become Abraham. And he appeared to him and says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And he says, no longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. And he says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And the whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. And then he says this, This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So the Israelites, the men, were expected to be marked in their bodies, not unlike a tattoo, some mar- a permanent mark in their bodies that identified them as descendants of Abraham and therefore of the people who would inherit the land. And what had happened is that the previous generation had gone up to the land and had failed to believe that God could give it to them. And they turned away and then they changed heart and tried to do it but God said no. You have not believed in me. And they were condemned to 40 years of ongoing unbelief in the wilderness. And what went along with that unbelief was they let go of the mark of the covenant. They didn't bother continuing to mark themselves as the people of promise who would have the land. There was a marking that was a sign of confidence that they were God's promised Uh, covenant people who would get the land. And when they didn't get the land, they stopped doing it. They failed to mark themselves in the appropriate way for Canaan conquering people. And now that they came back round, they crossed the Jordan, they're on the verge of conquering the land of Canaan, God says to Joshua, let's get this right now. Let's get you marked like you should have been as a sign of who you are as a people. The people who to whom it has been promised to conquer this land. 
So they identified themselves once more as people who believed. They identified themselves no longer as desert wanderers living a subnormal life, but as people who were set to conquer the land. They got ready to go to work. But that's only part of it. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant to Abraham. But as well as that, there's something else. The Bible doesn't only talk about the circumcision of men. It also talks about the circumcision of the heart. And not only in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, actually not long before this story of Joshua, Moses talked to the people of Israel, just before he died, about circumcision of the hearts. In Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6, Moses says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. In Colossians, in the New Testament, Colossians 2 and verse 11, it's explained that This kind of circumcision, circumcision of the heart, is something that applies for us as followers of Jesus in the new covenant. We don't have to be circumcised according to the covenant of Abraham. Uh, But there is a circumcision of the heart. Colossians 2 and verse 11 says, In him, that's in Christ, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. So, there's a sense in which this passage in Colossians teaches us that we have all been circumcised in our hearts when we've come into a relationship with Jesus and being forgiven of our sin, and taken on a new identity in him, our hearts have been cleansed. But as Colossians talks about circumcision of the heart, and a putting off of the old ways, the old self, the old sinful nature, actually elsewhere in the New Testament, it teaches us that that's an ongoing process, isn't it? The ongoingly put off the old self, ongoingly are renewed, ongoingly take on our new nature in Christ. Now, I felt prompted this morning to do something that I also feel nervous about, to be honest. Um, I'll be back in a minute. Uh, I felt prompted to be a bit like a biblical prophet. You know, there's Agabus in the New Testament who binds himself up in a belt in order to bring home God's word about the threat to Paul's life. The things that the prophets in the Old Testament got up to are rather nerve-wracking, whether it's wandering around naked or lying on your side or burning your feces. or I mean, It's just quite incredible, some things that God made the prophets do in the Old Testament. So I, I felt prompted just to do something to help bring home to us the reality of what God is wanting from us this morning in terms of circumcising our hearts, because I think it's language that comes from another culture and another time, and it can pass us by. So I went and got a knife. Um, 
I was wondering if at this point any men might cross their legs, but I don't don't see that happening. I went and got a knife, and I went and I got a heart. Uh, It's not a human heart. (laughs) And the truth is that for us, Jesus is our great physician. And he comes to us to cut out from us that which needs cleansing from us. And he asks us to come and to, to give him... We sing about this all the time, don't we? I give you my heart. But actually, as we give Jesus our hearts, he wants to circumcise our hearts. He wants to mark our hearts in such a way that they will never be the same again and we have a new identity in him as a people of promise. But also, as our great physician and healer, as our saviour, he sees the gangrene, the moral and ethical stuff inside us that needs cleansing and he cuts it out. He takes a knife to our hearts carefully, gently, knowing just what we need, sharply, patiently, thoroughly, until all that needs to be cut out from our hearts is gone. He takes it away from us. It may take longer than we think it will. There's something that God wants to do to get rid of the muck that's in us so that we would have a clean heart before him. And I think God would want to say to us this morning that he doesn't want us to offer him the sacrifices of our lips easily. He doesn't want us just to say, oh, I'll give you my heart, that's fine, without recognising that he wants to work on our hearts and he wants to change us and cause us to be a people who are ready to work for him. Huh. I was nervous about doing this this morning, but we've just read a passage which is about circumcision of a nation. And I think we need to connect with something of the reality of the story. It's a fleshy story and a bloody story, and it took days for them to heal. But they underwent surgery at the command of God in order to be ready to do what God had for them to do. The circumcision of the human heart, Romans 2 and verse 29 says, is done by the Spirit of God. We need the Holy Spirit to cleanse our hearts, to cleanse us inside. Only he can diagnose and dissect out our selfishness. Only he is strong enough to keep us on the straight and narrow, the true course of ethical living. He helps us in temptation. He enables us to pray to Jesus for help. He keeps us true 
to the resolve of our holiest moments. To put it another way, as I have already, Jesus stands before us as Joshua once did with a flint knife and he sees our moral gangrene and he offers to cut it out. It's a good offer. He offers to cut it out and take it away that we would be clean. We might flinch. We probably do flinch. But let's not shrink away from Jesus, the lover of our souls, and let him do all that he deems to be necessary. I remember praying, I remember it well, 13 and a half years ago. I know when it was, because Bev and I were engaged. I was being prayed for by Jeremy, who was leading worship this morning, and by Steve Thomas, who was preaching last week, because I, I was in a mess. I was all stewed. I was at work, and I was... Oh, oh, I, don't know, I still don't know quite what was going on. Um, I, needed pre- I, I was set up my work, and I was having panic attacks, and I couldn't concentrate on the screen in front of me, and I knew I needed prayer. And they prayed for me, and praise God, God set me free from something that day from something that morning, uh, that evening, sorry. But um, I remember praying at a certain point, and it was the Spirit helping me to pray. I said, God, would you just do with me whatever you want to do with me? Like, whatever it is. <laughs> and uh, I prayed that, and I didn't get an amen from Jeremy and Steve. I don't know if you remember this, Jeremy. I think it was Jeremy said to me, uh, actually they laughed, and they said to each other, and they said to me, are you sure you want to pray that? <laughs> Do you know what you're praying? And uh, as best as I knew how, I said, yeah, I, I do want to pray that, actually. I have to say, the next few years of life were not easy. God took me at my word and dealt with me strongly in the next few years. I remember going often week after week. I've been soon after this, well, a couple of years after this, I was appointed um, to work as a pastoral worker in the church. And we have a prayer meeting every Tuesday morning for pastoral staff. And, and I used to go, and um, some of you who were there will remember this, I quite often would just sit and weep in the corner. I think I was an embarrassment, actually. I know this, because the first few times people were nice to me and prayed with me, and then they used to sort of walk out the room a little bit, <laughs> going, why did we employ this young man? I think that's what was going on. Maybe, maybe, maybe I could be corrected on that. But it was a time when God dealt with me deeply. And I want to encourage you not to flinch from praying that kind of prayer. God, would you do in my life all that you deem to be necessary? And we can trust him. We can trust him. Lift up your hearts to the Lord. Why? Why undergo this circumcision, which for us, well, for the Israelites was circumcision of the men, for us is a circumcision of the hearts. Well, here's the first thing. This is going back to Joshua 5, which I'm not abandoning, in case you think I'm going all over the place. We're actually going through Joshua 5 in order. We've just talked about the, uh, the circumcision and all that it meant. And then it says in verse 9, the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. The reproach of Egypt 
That, that phrase it occurs elsewhere in the Old Testament, the reproach of other people towards Israel in Zephaniah, in Ezekiel. And what it means is that the Egyptians were mocking them. They'd seen this Hebrew nation go out of Egypt in power and then amble around the wilderness for 40 years, gradually dying off. And they mocked them and they laughed and they said, Ha! You thought you were so great. When you were set free from slavery, you thought you had a great future. But look at you. You're nothing. You're rubbish. And that God of yours, I don't know what he was doing 40 years ago, but he's pretty rubbish now. And they observed the powerlessness of the people of Israel and they mocked them. And the Lord said to Joshua, today, on this day of circumcision, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. In this dealing of God with us, there is a fresh start. There is a fresh start. There is nothing in our lives that is so embedded in us, nothing that is so deep in us that Jesus, the great physician, the surgeon of our souls, cannot dissect it out and renew us as cleansed people. So you can have a fresh start. I don't know how much you feel the need for a fresh start. I, I know that actually there's quite a few people, you know, knowing people, you know, I, there's quite a few people that need a fresh start, actually. A fresh start of a new identity, new purpose. And it's available for you in Christ, even today. So one reason for undergoing circumcision is to gain that fresh start. A second reason of undergoing circumcision is to be able to join in with God's work and gain the rewards of work. In verses 11 and 12, it says, The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, the unleavened bread and roasted grain, and the manna stopped. Now, I don't know how you feel about manna. You might think that manna is really cool. Like the whole idea of food dropping out of the sky, uh, it's free and uh, pretty, pretty obviously miraculous and something that you'd probably be quite excited about. Interesting thing is, that's not really how the Israelites felt about it. This is how the Israelites felt about it. They said uh, that they began, it says that in Numbers 11, they began to crave other food and started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also, the cucumbers, <laughs> melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. Whoa. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. How many of you have seen the film The Matrix? Probably quite a lot of people. There's a character called Cypher who gets fed up of eating the goop, the bacterial yeasty goop that they survive on, and betrays everyone just in order to have the illusory sense of eating a steak. I don't know if 
You, you know, I'm seeing some people nodding. Right? That feeling that he has in that film, for those of you, most of you have seen it, of just utter despair at eating the same bland, tasteless stuff day in, day out. The Israelites wailed and said, Give us cucumbers, please. <laughs> Melons, please, somebody. So the manna was good, but you know, after 40 years... I think we can imagine how they felt to eat grain, roasted grain, unleavened bread, milk and honey, things you don't get in the desert. But this was going to come to them as the result of work. The grain and the milk and the honey and the cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic were not going to fall out of the sky for them. They were going to have to work for these. And there is reward for work. And it ties in with a cleansing. Steve Thomas read last week a couple of verses I want to read again from 2 Timothy, where it says, In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Here's a promise here that if we are cleansed, then that cleansing prepares us for doing God's work. So the circumcision released the Israelites to be engaged in the task of conquering the land. Now, work is not just what we're paid to do. We talk, don't we, in our, in our day and age about work-life balance. Uh, and we talk about work as if it were simply something that we are paid to do. But actually, work is more than that. Work is any activity that has a purpose beyond itself. Whether you're paid to do it or not, any purposeful activity is work. Something that, any activity that achieves something beyond itself. Uh, rest is ceasing activity. Play is an activity that has an end in itself. You do it just because it's good to do. It doesn't matter what it achieves. It's called play. That's good as well. Rest is good. Play is good. Uh, But actually, God himself is a worker. You know, he made the world. I don't know what you made this week. It probably was a bit of an effort for anything that you did make. God made the world and all that is in it, and that was work. And uh, actually, God maintains the world. That's a big caretaker's job. The caretaker's job here at the King Centre, I think, is sometimes quite demanding for someone to do, but God maintains the whole world. And he is, he's a worker. Jesus said, my father is always at work. And so as people made in God's image, we too are workers. God doesn't give us work to do in order to wear us out, or because it's somehow necessary you know, but one day we'll be set free from it. He gives us work to do so that we can enjoy the rewards of work. It's like how he's wired. He made the world, saw that it was good, and found joy in the good thing that he'd done. And God gives us work in the same way. As Christians, we might think that it's better to live by faith than to work for a living. But the New Testament says that if someone won't work, then they shall not eat. Work is part of our lives. Uh, In Micah, chapter 4, 
uh, Micah prophesies about what the redeemed world would look like when everything's put right. And he talks about spears being beaten, thank you, into plowshares. It's fascinating. Because I don't know what you think about heaven, but I think the way we often think about heaven is it's just one long party, i.e. it's a whole lot of play and rest, in which case the spears really ought to be beaten into bedsteads and cutlery. But actually, in this vision of the redeemed world, the spears are beaten into plows, which you don't have much purpose for except working with them. So I don't know how you feel about this, but our future is one of work. There is as much power, as much divine power, in the production of a fig as in the descending manna. There is as much wonder in the transformation of earth, rain, and air into grapes as there was at the miracle of the wedding wine at Cana. God works through our work. And Steve Thomas last week was talking about us taking responsibility for our patch. It's to do with us working. There are better things to come. But as he said last week, we gain those better things by applying ourselves to God's call. Has God spoken to you about having a healing ministry? Organise some healing meetings. How about that? Take responsibility for developing a healing ministry rather than expecting it to fall like manna from heaven upon you at some future point without your cooperation. Has God promised you a wife? If you feel God's prophetically promised you a wife, then smarten up. <laughs> get over your issues and learn to show love and care. For example. <laughs> has God given you dreams of leading people to Christ? I know he has for many. Then you might need to knock on doors. You might need to run an alpha course. There's stuff to do as we take responsibility. You know, um, it's time for us not only to pray for manna to fall from heaven, but to see miracles happen as we act, as we step out, and God is with us. Thirdly, why undergo circumcision? Well, for the profound joy of being on God's team. That's at the England team at the World Cup. Those girls um, are not in the England team. (laughs) Let me explain. Yeah, yeah, it might have helped if they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. (laughs) There'd have been a distraction from all those people putting the ball in our net, perhaps. Um, This chapter in Joshua 5 is set on the plains of Jericho, ahead of Jericho. Now, the Israelites have, in recent history, defeated the Amalekites and the armies of King King Sihon and Og. There we go. And so they were used to winning battles, but there's a massive difference between winning a battle on an open field and laying siege to a city. Especially when you've got an army of something like half a million people to support. It's really hard 
pretty much impossible to support an army of about half a million, or actually, I'm not clear about the numbers, but it's at least, I mean, there's millions of Israelites, so don't take my word at the heart. It's a lot of people, though. I should have checked that, shouldn't I? I know for sure that it was enough people that supplying them with food for the duration of a siege, supplying them with water for the duration of the siege, was next to impossible. So there's a massive army to take the land in front of Jericho, and it's not at all obvious how they can do it, because the walls of Jericho are thick and high. And so they have a bit of a quandary. They're being called to work with God to conquer the land, but immediately they've got something that is seemingly beyond them. And here comes the beautiful part of this passage. Joshua was near Jericho, presumably having some kind of thoughts about it. I wonder how we're going to do that. And he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And this is Joshua's burning bush. Moses met God at a burning bush, and he was told, the ground is holy, take off your sandals. This was Joshua's burning bush encounter. Uh, Theologians discuss the identity of the commander of the army of the Lord. Is it an angel? Is it Jesus? Most are agreed that this was God himself appearing to Joshua, just as God himself appeared to Moses in the burning bush. It's his presence that makes the ground holy. Now, God did not come to join in Joshua's fight. We often pray that way, don't we? God, I'm doing this, could you help me? It may have been what was going through Joshua's mind as well as he looked at Jericho. Jericho, God, you told us to do it. Could you help us, please? And God comes just on a different agenda to all of that. He doesn't come simply to help. He doesn't come simply to join in. But actually, even though he does take charge, because Joshua says to him, what should I do then? Commander. The commander of Israel's army turns to God and says, what then should I do? What's your message for me? The commander, God, doesn't simply come to take charge of the existing resources either. It's not just that there's the Hebrew army, now I'm going to give you better command and instruction as to what to do. He comes as the commander of a different army. He comes as the commander of the army of the Lord, that is, of the armies of heaven. And it was the army that he brought with him that would tear down the walls of Jericho as the Hebrews blew their trumpets. It was the army that he brought with him that would strike fear into their enemies in order to bring victory to the people of Israel. The wicked people of Canaan were militarily stronger than Joshua and the Israelites. That's the truth of it. And Joshua and the Israelites did not have the strength in themselves to overcome the people of Canaan. It's made very clear to us in the Bible that that is how it was. 
apart from Jesus, no one, no human, has ever proven able to overcome the attack of the dark demonic powers that lie behind all human evil. It's stronger than us. We can't do it. But Jesus, in his life and death, turned the tide. When he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, it was established beyond any doubt that though humanity is no match for the devil, that Christ is more than a conqueror. He is able. And so, in all the things that we are called to do as we work for God, our success lies not in our numbers. It lies not in our cleverness or cunning. Our success lies in our spiritual allies, the armies of heaven. It rests on an alliance with the armies of heaven, of whom God spoke to Joshua, saying, as commander of those armies, the armies of the Lord, I have now come. And it's an amazing thing to be on God's team. That's why I chose this picture. Those girls, actually, however badly our team did, they would have done even worse with those girls on their team, is the truth of it. Um, An army of infant children, uh, uh, a football team of infant children, would not fare well in the World Cup. I think we can be fairly sure they'd never win. But it's like God comes along, not that Stephen Gerrard is God, there's a, you know, there's a limit to all analogies, you understand that. But, um, but God comes to us in our limited ability and strength, in our powerlessness. God comes to us and says, you know what? I've got a team I'm bringing with me. They're a good team. And we're going to win together. Shall we move forward together? You and me, the armies of heaven with us. Victory is in store for us. So all of this flowed out of the circumcision. The previous generation had just not believed in any of this stuff. They'd not believed that there was a fresh start for them in Canaan. They'd not believed that they would get the produce of the land. And they'd not believed that God was powerful enough to work with them to see the land conquered. They'd not believed any of that stuff. And so they left off circumcision saying, I don't think we're that kind of people. We're not, that kind of pe- we're not the kind of people who believe and conquer and gain possession. But at this point in time, they regained their identity as the people of promise. And they were marked in their flesh. They were cleansed of unrighteousness and enabled to join in with the conquest. And it's an amazing, amazing thing. So, as we look at the story of Joshua, we're looking at this week by week at the story of conquest and the various things that happened and the various lessons that went on along the way. And I think it would be quite easy for us to want to skip over this, you know, flesh-cutting circumcision bit, this having our souls dealt with bit. We'd like to have the victory without the flint knife. That's what, I mean, that's what we'd like, isn't it? <laughs> that would be nice for us. But as it says in 2 Timothy, it is those who are cleansed who are fit for noble purpose. 
We cannot, there is no shortcut or diversion around the hill of foreskins, at which reproach was, was rolled away. There's no other way through. There's a need for us to be changed and cleansed by God. So, um, we have got some time this morning to respond to that. Um, can we have, Jeremy, could you help us, please? Um, the band will come and play. Um, I think we probably will sing about giving God our hearts, but um, let's just see how God leads us. Now, some of you may need to respond to, to take your shoes off and recognise you're standing in a holy place. Moses, um, Joshua, it says, fell face down on the ground in reverence at this time. So if you need to get up and move, find some space, and lay yourself out before the Lord as part of your response to him to say, God, would you do in me whatever you want to do in me? Then you're free to respond in those ways. Um, I'm going to pray and then hand over to Jeremy. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are determined to cleanse us. Thank you that we can trust you. And we confess that there is a nervousness that we have about letting you get hold of our lives. So we're, we're grateful that you've chosen us, but a little bit nervous, really, about letting you have the driving seat. A little bit nervous. Um, hmm. Lord, help us not to miss the doctor's appointment. Give us the courage and the grace to come to you and to offer ourselves to you for you to deal with us as you see fit. I pray, Father God, that you would send the Holy Spirit to us now. Lord, in all that I've shared this morning, I want to pray that you would come and cleanse that word too. If there's anything that has landed by your Spirit, come and take that. Lord, if there's anything where I've erred. Lord, wash that away. Lord, this morning I want all that there is amongst us to be of you. And as we respond to you, for our response to be to your word, to your spirit, our response to be to you. And would you help us to do that? Will we offer ourselves afresh to you and ask that you would work in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.